On the show today, we will be talking about the victim mentality of some royal celebrities. Also, we will discuss how we are still fighting to defend life in the womb and also the importance of knowing scripture and how to spot those who twist it to support their sinful ideas. We'll also take a look at a Christian survey and then on to our podcast review of the final episode of Gender Indoctrination. Now let's push on through this and keep looking at that light at the end of the tunnel with our assurance of salvation at the end. Now let's dive in. Welcome in. This is Religionless Christianity. I'm your host, Spencer, and this is my beautiful wife, Nikki. Hello. We're so grateful that you're here today. And if you're new here, again, don't let the the name scare you off. We're very religious, very Christian folks, but the world and the country that we live in increasingly is not becoming more and more secular, more and more religionless, if you will, every single day, it seems so. That, at least in part, is where the name comes from. But our goal here today, as with every day, is to help uh, you guys help ourselves, you know, figure out how we can live a life that's pleasing to God in the midst of it all. So that's what we're going to do today. But before we get into all the stories we have to discuss, is there anything else, honey, you would like to say? Oh, just a prayer request for me or for us. Um, I know we'll probably be moving soon, but. I'd like to keep working until the day we move. The Airbnb I was cleaning, they decided uh, very suddenly they're going to sell it. And they did not give me a heads up. And when it was my last day of cleaning, they let me know that after I had cleaned and I didn't know it was my last day. So, yeah, thanks. (laughs) So now, yeah, I know God will provide. We do have a couple of people who... um, who need their houses cleaned, but I like that consistency with the the Airbnb, how often you get to clean, but maybe moving on to something different. I don't know. Yeah. So just pray for that. God has blessed us already. You know, we, we do still have enough to get by and keep on chugging along. So not desperate for it, but it does certainly help. And, you know, 2023's America, things aren't exactly cheap. So uh, please pray for us there. Also, uh, we are moving now kind of officially, and it's about two months away from the date we're supposed to be moving out of here. So we have nothing boxed up. We have nowhere to move to, I guess, in New Mexico. So just pray for us that the move will go smoothly. Uh, It always does. Things always tend to work out. But moving Mm -hmm. across country for what, this is our eighth time, I suppose, is it's always a bit hectic and stressful. So just pray for us that, you know, we find a nice place to live for us and the kids and it just relatively goes all right. So it is funny because we were asking for prayers before on the podcast, moving here from New Mexico. Yeah, this is our shortest, well, (laughs) second shortest assignment. We had a shorter assignment for training But this wound up being the shortest assignment of our career, which we thought was going to be our final assignment. We thought we were going to retire here. Uh, God had other plans for us and we're okay with that. But, you know, the moves are always difficult. So we just hope that that will go well. And we'll find a place that is hopefully a bit better for us as far as a family to live in. You know, this place, we were blessed to find it. But, you know, it's... uh, it is what it is. Hopefully there's a place that's got a little more 
room to stretch out, I guess. Maybe a room for a podcast studio. Who knows? We'll see what the Lord gives us. So just pray for us there. And uh, you guys know, before we get into the news, let's take a look at uh, the people we really like. Cardinal Contingency Solutions. You guys know that we're big fans of Cardinal. We talk to you guys every week about Cardinal. Um, Every time we see stories in the news about chaos in foreign countries for missionaries, we try to remind you guys, Cardinal is who you need to go and talk to to prepare yourself, prepare your teams, your missionaries, whoever it happens to be, before you step out the door. Be prepared before things fall apart and then you're scrambling. You know, Cardinal can help make sure that you have all your ducks in a row, as they say, you know, before you step out the door. So if something happens and you get into, a, you know, just a, a difficult situation, you're not scrambling, you know, and even the people back home aren't scrambling because they can have the plan as well. They can know how to help you, even if you're across the world. Cardinal can work that out for you. They're the best in the world at what they do. So just reach out to them. And then you guys know as well, we are proud members of the Christian podcast community. And if you have not yet, you can go to the Christian podcast community or you can search them on any podcasting platform that you like to listen to podcasts on and you'll get basically one feed gives you about 55 to 60 podcasts all Christian men and women speaking about godly things so it's a great resource to have we're on there very blessed to be so and we think if you uh, went over there gave them a subscribe and a follow whatever platform you're on you'd be blessed as well so go check them out Anything else? Nope. All righty then, folks. You know what time it is. Unless you're new here, you don't know what time it is. So we'll get you ready. Prepare yourself. Gird up your loins. Empty your bladders. Put on the full armor of God as we prepare for our weekly trek through the valley of the shadow of death and take a look at the news of the week. So... Prince Harry, (laughs) Um, I wasn't sure if we were going to talk about this story, but Prince Harry has been in the news. I believe he's still the Duke of Sussex. Nikki was unsure of what Sussex was, and I did not know how to explain it properly to her, but he is a Duke of Sussex. And again, he's been in the news with the release of his memoir. It's called Spare. Uh, It immediately became an Amazon bestseller. I think it's, you know, like it says here, it's sell, sold well over 1.4 million copies already. So it's selling like crazy. And I just wanted to talk about Prince Harry really for two reasons. Uh, you know, first, I haven't read the book. Um, I've really just read about what's in the book. And it seems that Harry, or at least from what people commentate, he kind of goes to great lengths, it seems, to sort of um, present himself as a victim, if you will, Mm -hmm. Uh, which is interesting. And I guess you could say that in the world we live in today, 2023, the benefits of being a victim exceed that of even being a prince in the British royal family. Yeah. It's a powerful drug. You're willing to give up your nobility your royal status to put on that crown of victimhood, I guess. It affects everyone. doesn't matter your status. 
Doesn't Maybe matter. more so. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know, but it seems to have gripped Harry. So, but on that, of course, he isn't a victim, right? But just like most of our celebrities and our entertainer class, you know, I would say you could, you know, they're just so egotistical. They're so puffed up with pride that really even slight offenses against them sort of registers as victimhood. You know, even just a slight offense against a celebrity or nobility. And somehow that's, you know, it's too much. You're, you're causing them to be a victim, I guess. Mm -hmm. But one of the, there's been a lot revealed in this book, but one of the, I think was kind of funny. One of the supposedly explosive details from Prince Harry's book is it was revealed that he allegedly got into a fight with his older brother. Oh, so Prince shocking. Williams. Yeah, or Prince William, the future king of England, got into a fight with his older brother. And, you know, I guess if you have an older brother, anybody in the world then, you now have a qualification for victimhood. So if you've ever had an older brother, I mean, boy, am I a victim. My older <laughs> brother used to beat me up all the time. And not even like unjustly i would try to beat him up and it would go sideways and then <laughs> i would get beat up again so i guess i can claim victimhood status if i want to uh pretty funny that that is something you would even share i wonder if there's affirmation because he's a decorated combat veteran prince harry i think he even <laughs> claims in this book i think that he's killed so many people or whatever in combat so it's funny to have a combat decorated veteran be like, my brother beat me up this one time. I'm like, what? Why do you want people to feel sorry for you? He should have beat you up. He probably should have beat you up more. Maybe you'd be probably. more of a man. Who knows? But let's be frank. You know, it's kind of funny joking about Prince Harry, you know, but we just use him as an example because he doesn't have, you know, an abuse problem. He, like everybody else, like me and Nikki and like you, we have a sin problem. Mm -hmm. That's it. It comes out in different ways for different people, but he has a sin problem, not an abuse problem. Yeah. Getting down to the core of it. It's like everything's a social contagion, even being a victim of something. It's just... Yeah. It's everywhere. No, it's and it's definitely infecting him here. You know, everybody wants a piece of that pie. And I mean, shoot, his book is flying off the shelf, so he's rich and famous already why not make a whole bunch of more money by selling a book about how oppressed and how difficult your life has been because i think even the na name of the book spare you know i again i haven't read it and i haven't heard anybody mention it but i'm assuming it's to indicate that he's sort of the spare child right because he's not going to be king of england he's the so he younger know who son he is yeah all he is is I just guess. a prince you know give me a break so He's got a sin problem. And pride is, of course, the greatest sin, right? It's sort of the root of all sin. So I'm sure people that are born princes have even more pride than probably the regular Joe. Uh, but secondly, and more importantly, I actually saw many tweets uh, on this topic. And I saw a couple that were in this, or in this vein. And I only have one that if you're watching the video, it'll be up on the screen. If not, you'll just have to take my word for it if you're listening to the podcast. But, you know, people were kind of claiming 
that Prince Harry is sort of the perfect example of why you need to marry the right woman. Which again, we certainly advocate for marrying the right woman here, but they're basically shifting the blame for Harry's downfall onto Meghan Markle, his wife. And look, regardless, <laughs> at least as far as I'm concerned, regardless of the kind of woman Meghan Markle is, this is just absurd. Because Prince Harry is just that. He's a prince. <laughs> He's British royalty. Were there a lot of people on board with that comment? I saw multiple people claiming that, you know, Meghan has ruined this man's life, you know, and she's the big problem here. And I don't doubt that maybe she is a problem. Who knows? But Prince Harry, again, he's a prince. He was born into a station of life higher than all of you listening, <laughs> at least in the worldly sense. You know, he is, again, born into nobility. So he's a victim of no one. You know, yeah. again, besides his own sinfulness and you could say his own idiocy, if you want to call it that. And people are saying that about the book where they read it, they go, he's an unintelligent man. I don't know that, but that's what they say. You know, so really whatever he's allowed Megan to do to him or his family, whatever, it doesn't really make a big difference, I don't think, because it's his doing and it's his fault. We should not be allowing, you know, in our own lives or least of all in a prince's life, you know, we should not be allowing someone else to like shift blame away from them. So somehow we can, I don't know, hold them in higher esteem still. Yeah. He's not a victim of Meghan Markle. He chose to marry her. You know, he's yeah. the head of that household. He's British royalty, um, all these sorts of things. And not Wouldn't to mention written about her in a negative light in the book, if she was. No. And that's what they always say is, you know, she sort of trashes his family and puts him at odds with the family and he just doesn't say anything about it. You know, so it's her fault. And again, I'm not saying she doesn't have a plethora of issues to deal with, probably does, but it never does us any good to shift our, our blame and the problems of our sin onto somebody else and our own shortcomings because he chose to marry her. He allows her the, you know, to do and say whatever she wants with little recourse. So that's on him, you know, so I'm not going to be here shifting blame onto Meghan Markle, though, of course... And we've done episodes on marriage on this podcast. You can go find them. We are very big advocates of marrying the right person. Uh, not just the best looking person, not the first person that came along. Be thoughtful about it. You know, do they love the Lord? You know, are they passionate about their faith? Do they fit the biblical roles of what God has commanded men and women to do? Do they desire that? I mean, those are all things that should be higher on your list than does she look good? You know, does she, I don't know, tell me I'm cool. I mean, I don't know. There's, there's other qualifications what, what I'm trying to say. To you? <laughs> so, uh, but secondly, on this point, and this was what really struck me, and it has struck me for a long time about the British royal family. Because uh, we in America, we used to have what I would consider a very healthy disdain for royalty in this country, we used to we used to not be great fans of nobility and royalty. And if you guys would uh, forgive me, I wanted to read a little bit from Thomas Paine's Common Sense. 
and I'll have this book linked down in the show notes. But as I was going through it, I probably pulled more, more quotes than I should have. But I want to read them all because I think it is just, he says it very well. And I read this book years ago, and this was always the part of the book that stuck out to me, was how he spoke about sort of kings and nobility. So I'm just going to read through some of it. And, you know, if you don't want to listen to any of it, it'll probably be, I don't know, three to five minutes long. So, but bear with me because I think it's worth listening to. He says, mankind being originally equals in the order of creation, the equality could only be destroyed by some subsequent circumstance. The distinctions of rich and poor may in a great measure be accounted for in that without having recourse to the harsh, ill-sounding names of oppression and avarice. Oppression is often the consequence, but seldom or never the means of riches. And though avarice will uh, preserve a man from being necessitously poor, it generally makes him too timorous to be wealthy. I'm not sure I said those words properly, but bear with me. All right, he goes on. But there is another and greater distinction for which no truly natural or religious reason can be assigned, and that is the distinction of men into kings and subjects. Male and female are the distinctions of nature, good and bad the distinctions of heaven. But how a race of men came into the world so exalted above the rest and distinguished like some new species is worth inquiring into and whether they are the means of happiness or of misery to mankind. And just on that part there, I thought was very interesting where he makes the distinction that kings and subjects, that wasn't God's design. God's design was male and female. Mm. And he says heaven's design is good and bad. Mm -hmm. That's the distinction. But it's man in our own <laughs> sinfulness that made the you know our own distinction between kings and subjects. I just think that's a really interesting point. But he goes on in here, he says, as the exalting one man so greatly above the rest cannot be justified on the equal rights of nature, so neither can it be defended on the authority of scripture. For the will of the Almighty, as declared by Gideon and the prophet Samuel, expressly disapproves of government by kings. All anti-monarchical monarchical <laughs> parts of scripture have been very smoothly glossed over in the monarchical governments, but they undoubtedly merit the attention of countries which have their governments yet to form. Render unto Caesar the things which are Caesar's, is the scripture doctrine of courts. Yet it is no support of monarchical government, for the Jews at that time were without a king, and in a state of vassalage to the Romans. And I think that part's interesting, you know, because I think we lose sight sometimes of the fact that, you know, God didn't place kings over Israel. And we all remember, mm -hmm. you know, Samuel, when the people cried out for a king because they wanted to look like all the other countries. Um, God, he had placed prophets over them and judges to help guide them uh, according to his will. But the people in their own sinfulness wanted a king and God gave them a king, which was Saul, <laughs> not a great king. You know, but he did eventually bless them through David, you know, but that just speaks more to God can turn, you know, what we mean for evil, God can turn for good. Yep. But still the idea of kings, again, was against God's design. So I just think that's interesting. 
Um, just a few more passages here. He says, To the evil of monarchy, we have added that of hereditary succession. And as the first is a degradation and lessening of ourselves, so the second, claimed as a matter of right, is an insult and imposition on posterity. For all men being originally equals, no one by birth could have a right to set up his own family in perpetual preference to all others forever. And though himself might deserve some decent degree of honors of his contemporaries, yet his descendants might be far too unworthy to inherit them. One of the strongest natural proofs of the folly of hereditary right in kings is that nature disproves it. Otherwise, she would not so frequently turn it into ridicule by giving mankind an ass for a lion. Secondly, as no man at first could possess any other public honors than were bestowed upon him, so the givers of those honors could have no power to give away the right of posterity. And though they might say we choose you for our head, they could not, without manifest injustice to their children, say that your children and your children's children shall reign over ours forever, because such an unwise, unjust, unnatural compact might perhaps, in the next secession, put them under the government of a rogue or a fool. Most wise men in their private sentiments have ever treated hereditary right with contempt, yet it is one of those evils which when once established is not easily removed. Many submit from fear, others from superstition, and the more powerful parts share with the king the plunder of the rest. This part, I think, is very important. You know, because what he's saying here is, you know, really the idea of hereditary rule is the more sinful part of kings and subjects. You know, he's saying, sure, in your life, you may make somebody a king, and they may even at some level have earned it. Maybe they conquered a land, whatever it happens to be, but they at least earned it at some earthly level that they deserve to be head over you but there's no way that like me and nikki or us you know our generation today can say we want prince harry to be king over us and we want his family forever to rule over everybody because now our children don't get a say they don't get to pick who has earned headship over them Mm -hmm. no people that and you know make this applicable today People in Britain, they don't get a choice who's head over them. This was decided hundreds and hundreds of years ago. Who gets to be ruler over them and their children forever? It's unjust is what he's saying, and I would agree with it. And Mm -hmm. because then he even goes on to say in there, which is a good point that, you know, even the person who may start out as king, that first generation king, he might have earned it. But now you set up hereditary rule. And you may very well get somebody who's a complete buffoon who gets to take the throne and rule over people who they otherwise would have never chosen because he's a fool. Mm -hmm. But oh, well, he was born in the right place. And now he gets to be, you know, Prince William, for example. What did he do to earn being the future king of England? He was born Charles's son. What a lucky day. It is very odd thing thinking about. And then just one last short quote here. He says, in short, monarchy and succession have laid not this or that kingdom only, but the world in blood and ashes. 
Tis a form of government which the word of God bears testimony against, and blood will attend it. And I think for us as Christians, that's an important part. The word of God really detests kings. Again, he's worked through us to set them up, but that by no means means that they're good or right. So why would even any Christians idolize any of them or care really what's, I don't know, all the gossip and like, yeah. why, why care? I mean, you know, and that's the funny thing, because in most of our life, since we were kids, the British royal family is just a celebrity family. You can't tell me what the British royal family actually does yeah. um, of any substance in England. You know, mm -hmm. I'm not even sure English people can tell you, you know, but again, over the course of decades, and this may have been not the case, you know, 50 to 100 years ago, I don't know. But again, we're such an idol worshiping culture in America and really yeah. around the world. We're a celebrity worshiping culture, you know, that we really get to the point like we are today, we grant victim status to princes and princesses, you know, because we can't dare mm -hmm. to knock them off their pedestal. Um, but again, I just think this is an un-American un mindset to have, you know, Prince Harry, the Prince Williams, right, through absolutely no contribution on their part, was born into a life of power, privilege, you know, wealth, nobility, all this sort of stuff, you know, so his claim of victimhood is just so far beyond even, you know, the levels of pride and arrogance of a person like LeBron James, who tries to claim victimhood or Donald Trump, whatever. His is so far yeah. beyond that, because even those guys at some level earned their status in life. Right. LeBron James had to be a great basketball player and they have to maintain it as well. You know, Prince Harry, Prince Williams, or Prince William, their wealth or nobility, their power, all this sort of stuff was given to them. And they don't even have to maintain it. It's just theirs. Have a nice They're day. They're just ungrateful. Yeah. For all their blessings. They just. Well, yeah. Harry certainly seems to be ungrateful. And. Uh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, so again, their claim on victimhood is nonsense. You know, they certainly don't get a claim on it. They're literally better than us by birthright in the world's eyes. So anybody trying to claim victim status that's born that way, we should. It should be abhorrent to us in America. Mm -hmm. Kings and queens should be abhorrent to us in America. Not to mention just us as Christians. We have one king, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Any man that would come and step in between that and say, well, no, you also have to worship and serve me. Nah, shame on that. So although I did have yeah. an interesting concept, something I think worth considering, I thought it might be worth considering Prince Harry... I don't know what all the rules are, but he should run for governor of California. He lives in California now with his wife, Megan. I thought he should run for governor of California. I have no doubt he would win. Um, and then we could kind of go full circle and complete the destruction of America and go right back to British servitude, oh right where we started. Wouldn't that be wonderful? So that's my recommendation. That's run for governor, Prince Harry. Oh my gosh. So... I just wanted to highlight that because I think we've lost that mindset of sort of being repulsed by kings and queens. And now they're just like the yeah. highest form of celebrity in this country. And it should not be that way. So I don't know if you have any yeah. other thoughts on Prince Harry, Meghan. I don't really have any other thoughts. I don't follow any of that. 
normally. Like this is the most I've ever known. It's just really any little highlights from that book. <laughs> right. And I don't know, or, you know, follow it either. And, you know, it's, it was even frustrating, but cause we talked about this last night with the kids and then Nikki and the kids around the table and like, well, what does he do? How does he and like trying to ask me all these questions? I'm like, I don't know anything about the British nobility. I don't even care to know anything about it, you know, but there you have it. Be repulsed by Kings and Queens. We should be. So, uh, we do have more stories here from the homeland, from uh, the old red, white, and blue. So do you want to read the headline, honey? And then we'll just go through some of the uh, story here. Sure. House Republicans quickly embrace two new anti-abortion measures. House Republicans advanced a pair of measures on Wednesday that, while largely symbolic, put their stamp on the abortion battle as it continues across the country a half year after the Supreme Court struck down federal protections. The first measure condemns violence against crisis pregnancy centers that counsel women against having abortions. The second measure would set new penalties and regulations for abortion providers in cases in which a child is born despite an attempted abortion or a failed abortion. The newly GOP-controlled chamber voted 222 to 209 to approve the measure condemning attacks on crisis pregnancy centers. It voted 220 to 210 to advance the measure designed to curb born-alive abortions. Yep. And then on this measure here, well, the first measure, the born alive, or the, uh, I'm sorry, the crisis pregnancy center. Uh, yeah, the violence against it. Yeah, the violence. Representative Mike Johnson, who's a Republican from Louisiana, I guess, he said, the idea of this measure was that it condemns the attacks that have been committed against pro-life facilities, groups, and churches in the wake of the leak of the Dobbs opinion and the subsequent decisions. And we got another article here that speaks more on the um, born alive aspect of this bill. Mm -hmm. Do you want to read that one, honey? Yep. It says House passes born alive abortion bill. The GOP led House voted on Wednesday to pass a bill that would require health care providers to try to preserve the life of an infant in the rare case that a baby is born alive during or after an attempted abortion. The bill is not expected to be taken up in the Democratic-controlled Senate, but passage in the House serves as a messaging opportunity for the new Republican majority. The vote was 220 to 210. Under the bill, the health providers who fail to comply with the requirements for care could face fines or up to five years in prison. The bill would not impose penalties on the mother and would grant the mother protection from any kind of persecution. These bills make it plain. House Republicans are patently rejecting the will of the overwhelming majority of Americans who voted to support legal abortion in November. The organization's president, Minnie, I'm not sure how to pronounce it, Timurahu, said, sure. <laughs> Meanwhile, our Democratic reproductive freedom champions in the House are ready and willing to fight to restore and expand access to abortion. And we thank them for that. 
Opponents have argued that such measures restrict abortion access by threatening healthcare providers. So their argument is that keeping a child alive that was born restricts people's further ability to kill their children. So the House Democrats accused the GOP lawmakers of hypocrisy for not consulting them first before introducing the measure and for ignoring the recent spat of violence against abortion providers. So if we don't protect everybody, then we can't protect anybody. Yeah, that's so sort of two bills here that they voted on. Um, again, one designed to protect crisis pregnancy centers and the other one to protect babies that were intended to be aborted, but made it out of that death trap and were alive. And I just wonder how rare is it? It says it's a very rare occurrence, but I wonder how often does it really happen? Do we know? Yeah, I'm not sure. I didn't look up is? the numbers on how many babies are actually born alive, but just, you know, like Nikki said, you know, kind of the argument on the born alive bill that they made is, you know, if we force doctors and these abortion clinics to keep these babies alive and rush them to the hospital and stuff, that's going to somehow restrict people's ability going forward to abort more babies. So we'd rather just kill that kid so that we can continue to kill more kids rather than save that life because it may cause us to save more lives. There's a word for that, folks. Called satanic. Um, it's all so twisted. Like, do they call like 911? Well, attempted, like, what do they say? Attempted uh, abortion here, but we need you to come save the bait. I don't know. Like, how does that go down? Yeah, I'm sure that's part <laughs> of it, right? Because you don't want normal people that aren't demon possessed, which all these doctors and nurses have to be, um, to actually show up to that crime scene. I mean, if you called legitimate medical workers, you know, uh, people that work for the ambulance, the first responders and yeah. police, and they showed up and they realize you have a baby with its leg and its arm ripped off, but its heart still beating and laying on a table. They might actually see the they wickedness need, for what it is. And it's not just first responders. They're going to need like the NICU crew on the ambulance is like ready to go. Yeah. So it's easier if they just let them toss that baby in a dumpster so it can, you know, freeze to death or just die. Like how often it's going to all be documented how often that this is. I it's mean, truly barbaric. Um, it is. Truly barbaric. But so they don't want. So, the, you know, they vote against that because somehow it's going to restrict killing more babies. But then even on the crisis pregnancy center, they vote against that because they say, well, there's nothing in this bill to protect abortion providers. So really, the argument is, if we can't protect anybody, we're not going to vote to protect anybody, which is a nonsensical argument. You protect those that are right in front of you, and then you worry about protecting the other people, you know, so ludicrous. Wow. But it's safe. <laughs> it's insane. Just, yeah. Now, they do point out in these articles, and we'll point it out here because it's true. I mean, this is mostly for show. This vote in the House, you know, the Republicans control the House, but Democrats control the Senate and the White House. Um, but even still, 
I think the point of these articles and the reason that, again, we're pointing them out, um, isn't to show the Republicans and how they voted, but rather it's to show the Democrat side of the aisle and really their obsession with killing children. Yeah. It's out of control. It's completely out of control. I think there was one Democrat that voted for like one of these bills out of the entire House of Representatives. Only one Democrat thought, you know, we should actually save a baby's life if it's born. Um, so we mentioned last week in our kind of first episode of the year, and we'll mention it again. You know, we aren't trying to make predictions for the year going forward. We're trying to remind you guys to not lose focus. That's what we want to do. Yeah. Um, and this de- uh, abortion debate, it's only getting started. It's just beginning in this nation, you know? Yeah. So right. these arguments are going to be continuing on and we can't get distracted and lose sight and go and pick up Prince Harry's worthless book and start reading. We got to stay laser focused on this stuff. There are real victims in the yeah, world. There's real victims. My goodness. And half of this country's political parties uh, or political party that accounts for half of this nation wants to just continue butchering and murdering babies. Um, it is a culture of death. A lot, yeah, it's a culture of death. So the lines are being drawn. We've got to be aware of it. Um, we've seen that for years now, and we've mentioned it on this show since it started. You know, the Democrat Party is a satanic political party. And really, we say that in large part because they stand for death. You know, through, obviously, abortion is the easy one to point out because that's what we're talking about here. But they stand for death in almost every respect. The yeah. drug epidemic. Yeah. Allowing criminals to pour across our southern border, transing our children, right? The clot shots, everything that brings about widespread death and destruction, they seem to support. They even want to get rid of your gas stove now in your house. Why? Who knows? Besides oh, destruction. Who so, knows? Yeah. Right? So as we've said before, this isn't a pat on the back for Republicans too much. The Republican Party stinks. But the Democrat Party is satanic. (laughs) So you have to be aware of that, you know, (laughs) because you can't, I don't know, you can't claim ignorance on this sort of stuff anymore, I don't think. Yeah, being complacent, you're just as guilty almost, you know. Right. And you might even say, hey, you know what? I want to ban gas stoves because I it somehow it killed my dog. I don't know. Whatever your argument is, climate change. Sure. But the problem is you're also signing off on them voting for killing babies that are born alive so that they can continue to kill other babies that haven't been born yet. People's priorities. So you have to decide, is me getting rid of a gas stove more important than actually having babies that were born continue on in life? I mean, that, you know, again, it's amazing to even be talking about this stuff. So, uh, (laughs) That's not the only reason that we call them satanic. There's many reasons, but, you know, they're a death cult, like Nikki said, is one of them. Um, Another one we'll have here, and that's really their satanic twisting of God's word, really to support this death cult that they're wrapped up in. So we have a clip here from, sadly, a congresswoman from our home state of Michigan, who's doing just that, twisting God's word to support killing children so we'll let you guys hear this because it's worth hearing 
Madam Speaker, I rise today in support of parental and maternal rights and in opposition to H.R. 26. I'm the first mother in history to represent West Michigan in Congress. This matter is deeply personal to me. I recently shared publicly about my own experience navigating a complex miscarriage and the loss of my daughter. As a pro-choice Christian who chose life, this issue is so personal to me. My faith informs my actions, but it doesn't dictate the policy of an entire nation. And further, when I read the scripture, I turn to passages and I'm guided by passages like Jeremiah 1 verses 5, which states, I knew you before I formed you and I placed you in your mother's womb. It doesn't say the government's womb or the speaker's womb. It says the mother's womb. <laughs> so you may never in the rest of your life hear a more lame twisting of God's word than that. Maybe it's not lame. Maybe it's just outright shoving it in your face. I was looking up that verse. I don't know what version she's reading, but the mine Queen did not. James version, mine probably. did not say. I know it's the mother's womb, but she made the point to say mother's. Mine just says womb. <laughs> I created you in the womb. I don't know. Right. It doesn't matter. She has to have that. That's to a make level her point. of self-deception. To read that scripture and go, yes, this means pro-choice. Because here's the thing, pro-choice Christian is a lie. That doesn't exist. Uh, you know, you... Yeah, you support murder. Yeah, you're yeah, placing yourself in a position weird. higher than God. Yes, he yeah. created the child. I'll be the one to determine if that child should live or not. Um, pro-choice Christian is not a thing. Uh, so, yeah. So when you have politicians like the... Honorable Reverend Senator Ralph Warnock, who claims to be a pro-choice pastor, that's incorrect. He's a uh, a heretic. So, and his church allows him to stand on the pulpit and uh, shame the name of God. So, shame on them. But Gosh. you know this idea here, this lie of pro-choice Christian, it's still being pushed out into the public. Um, and again, we need to not lose focus in standing against this. Because this is my opinion. Again, if you think I'm wrong, let me know in the comments. But you don't love God, yet live in opposition to God's commandments. You don't simultaneously read, you know, that yeah. scripture tells you in Jeremiah that life is precious and God ordained. And yet you claim to have your own right to end it based on your convenience. And then you still call yourself a Christian. Uh, I would disagree strongly with that. And we as a body of Christ need to stand strongly against that. We can't. And I think the reason why these people feel so emboldened is because we allow that to happen. We allow it to go, well, she's a pro-choice Christian instead of going, that doesn't exist. You don't get to determine, you know, the life of something that God's already set into motion. He's already granted that baby life in the womb and you go, I'm going to kill it because I want to continue to go out and live a life of whatever I want to live, Gosh. but I love God. Just no, because God uses you to grow someone he created does not put you in the place of God. Like he's not like you are just a vessel. <laughs> right. So, I mean, this is why we 
talk about these people they wear their christianity is an accessory for them you know it's something that they can kind of wear like a new purse and it gives them a certain level of status or makes them feel a certain way but it doesn't actually dictate their life um because this lady here is basically telling you her politics supersedes her faith yeah and i think that's the only way you can get to the point of twisting jeremiah 1 5 into a pro-abortion verse were you going to play the rest of that clip no or i'll just quote what she said when she said um my faith informs my actions but it doesn't dictate the policy of an entire nation and then she goes on later and says, just because I believe in the sanctity of life doesn't mean we need to invite the government in to regulate it. And I just thought, isn't that weird how people use words like regulate in place of words like defend? And so I just thought the government's supposed to be for the people and that should include the unborn, their life as well. Of course it should. It's just weird how people just switch words around or just change the meaning i'm like regulate right and if government doesn't exist to defend life then what does it exist for what is a higher purpose of government than to defend life you're right to be in charge of who lives redistribution of wealth of course yeah what it exists for so it's just like it's your choice against theirs but we can't we can't hear the child's voice on the matter of their own life. So does that mean that they just don't get a choice? <laughs> I don't know. What's this? When you make abortion your right, it becomes a political issue. And that is the way we have to defend babies in the womb now. It is a moral issue, just like everything else that we're speaking on lately. It's moral, but it's political too. Yeah, it's lunacy um, that somehow to say the government doesn't have a right to defend life. That's not what, again, these people have to wrap themselves into, you know, bow ties to try to make this stuff work. Because um, they'll tell you out of the same breath that the government has to regulate you getting your vaccines up to date to right. protect everyone around you. But then at the same time, the government shouldn't be in the bedroom or in the the hospital room to protect the life of that baby in the womb. That's a bridge too far. So again, they're speaking out of, you know, both sides of their mouth. It's yeah, maybe because they're fork tongued like their father, Satan. So <laughs> maybe. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, and we kind of have mentioned this for a long time, the idea that the Democrat Party largely today, and maybe this wasn't always the case, but it seems to be the case today. Um Democrat politics is their faith first and mm-hmm. foremost. Um, yeah. And whatever other faith they claim second or on top of that is secondary to their Democrat faith. Um, they allow their politics to determine their faith rather than their faith determining their politics, um, which quite frankly is no faith at all. You know, because she says in here, like, well, I'm pro life, but that doesn't mean that, you know, my pro life decisions should dictate or should be like how I whatever um, shouldn't be the policy that I try to dictate to an entire nation of course it should be yeah right what you believe should be what you're trying to instill on a national level maybe she's one of those Christians that's like my faith is my own I don't you know you keep it to yourself kind of you know people who say that it's private because she's standing on the floor of Congress reading Bible verses 
True. improperly. So, yeah. Uh, but this, again, goes both ways. It's not just Democrats. Republicans need to be out of this mindset of letting their politics drive their faith. You know, we got to not have a Republican Party that thinks Trump's going to somehow come in to save the day or if we vote for DeSantis. That's all my hopes are in DeSantis. No, you're wrong, right? Your faith needs to be greater than your politics. It needs to drive your politics because that's the only way that you're going to hold these people accountable to anything moral. You know, if Trump gets to determine what's right or wrong in this nation, then he gets to determine it and God doesn't. Right. And then he becomes your savior and not the Lord. So uh, just wicked stuff from a wicked political party that we need to not lose focus on. So. The last bit of news stories that we wanted to talk uh, talk about here was, would you have anything else on the abortion discussion topic? We have spoken a lot on that before. It's it's okay that this lady is a Michigan Congresswoman, but you know, Michigan, they're fighting to be the uh, the main entrance to hell in this nation. They're giving California and New York a run for their money. So this is just par for the course Mm, right now. Sad, but. This survey came out recently, and I just think it's interesting because you haven't read very many surveys on the Christian faith in America recently that painted a rosy picture. (laughs) And this one doesn't either. Spoiler. So if you want to just read that headline and then a little bit through the article. Survey reveals who spends more time alone with God, men or women. Female Protestant churchgoers are more likely than men to spend time alone with God, according to a new survey analyzing how often non-Catholics engage in quiet moments with the Lord. Lifeway Research conducted the survey of 1,002 Americans from September 19th to the 29th, 2022, recruiting participants through a national pre-recruited panel. Respondents were screened to determine whether they attend religious services at least once per month, and identify as Protestant non-denominational. In the survey published by LifeWay Research, an organization that analyzes ongoing church ministry uh, trends, 65% of Protestant churchgoers said they intentionally spend time with God at least daily. 44% of participants said they spend time with God once a day, while 21% said they enjoy quiet time with God multiple times a week instead of once or multiple times a day. And 7% say they have quiet time with the Lord once a week. 5% said they spend time with God a few times a month. 2% said once a month and 3% answered less than once a month. Only 1% of respondents said they never spend time alone with God. Gender appears to play a part in how likely respondents were to say that finding alone time with God was a daily habit for them. In the survey, 48% of women said that quiet time with God is part of their daily habit compared to 38% of men. The way that churchgoers choose to spend time with the Lord differs, however, with 83% of respondents saying that they pray to God in their own words instead of through the Bible. 80% thank God during their time alone with him, 62% praise him, and 49% confess their sins. Only 39% read from their Bible or a devotional, and only 20% repeat a set prayer. 18% consider God's characteristics while spending time with the Lord, and 1% say 
that, that they do something else. Ooh, so that's a lot that we read through. Uh, a lot of numbers, a lot of <laughs> topics to discuss. So as with every article that we discuss, it'll be down in the show notes. You can go read it for yourself. And I would encourage you to because there's more in here than what we pulled out. So go give it a, a read uh, and I guess see what it means to you. But a few of these numbers, you know, that stuck out to me. That's why these are the ones I pulled out here. In the first one, he said only 38% of men say that quiet time with God is part of their daily habit. Only 38%. And I think this is a shockingly low number because basically only a third of Christian men spend time with God each day. Mm -hmm. And I'll just say, you know, because you may try to sparse that and say, well, it says quiet time with God, you know, but I would say if you're not spending quiet time with God, you aren't really spending time with God. Because if you're like, well, I spend time with God as I'm driving down the freeway, eating my Burger King breakfast. Nope, you're not spending time with God. You know, I, I don't think that would qualify, you know, because Jesus, he even tells us Matthew chapter six, verse six, he says to go someplace alone. He says, but when you pray, go to your room and shut the door and pray to your father who is in secret and your father who sees in secret will reward you. You know, so again, if you consider, well, I spent time with the Lord as, you know, a three minute prayer as you're driving down the highway because you're late to work. I would say that doesn't qualify. Yeah, uh, God's not a priority. I think that's the heart of it. Is he a priority in your life? You know? Yeah, I think. If, again, if God is a priority, just like anything that's a priority, you set aside time for it. Mm -hmm. um, anything that you ha make a priority. This podcast is a priority. We set aside time for it. So you can't say, well, God's my greatest priority. Oh, really? Well, how much time do you set aside for him? None. <laughs> okay, well, he's not a big priority then. I think that's pretty easy. Um, but, you know, with this number, 38%, so a third of men, you know, and men are supposed to be spiritual heads of their household. And if you're not spending time with God, you aren't the proper spiritual head of your house. Now, you may be a de facto head, you know, spiritually, because no one else in your house may spend any time with God whatsoever. So even the fraction of time you spend with him puts you leagues in front of them, you know. Uh, but you could probably even say that a family that doesn't spend time with God is a byproduct of a husband or father not taking their responsibility to, to God seriously. You know, because I think there's been studies put out there that, and I guess even just in regards to church, but if a father goes to church, 93% of the time, the rest of the family goes to church. Mm -hmm. Whereas I think if it's, a, if it's a mother that goes to church only, it's somewhere down in like the 40s or 50s. So the chances of the rest of your family being faithful to God, if the father mm -hmm. is leading them mm -hmm. in that faith is far greater than even a mother who's faithful. So I think that's a big problem to see only 38% of men that make men, God if they a priority. Knew, if they knew what an impact they have on their children, even their wife, because I know children, they really do thrive in a in an environment, you know, they need rules, they need to be guided. And 
I think that's wives as well. Like wives want to be guided by their husbands. Um, that's just the way God designed it. It's not just children. I think wives really do want their husbands leading them. No, I the mean, right they way, do. It's... Even though they don't know sometimes, you know, if they're not saved yet either. So. Right. And they may not know because the whole world tells them that that's, that somehow if you have that thought that, no, I want my husband to lead and guide the home and faith and everything. Oh, no. Feminism tells you that, you know, that's the improper way to think, but it's not. That's biblically. But that's um, what the they're doing with the think. children today. It's like, you know, pitting the children against their parents. Like that first they pitted wives against husbands. Now they're doing the children, the parents. So they did start very cleverly with the head of the home and then, you know, then coming against the children. Yeah. No, for sure. Parents. Yeah. I mean, you took the protector out of the way and now the kids and the wives are free to be ravaged sort of a thing. So, but on this note with men, right? If you want to see this nation that we talk about a lot, we're not saving the nation that ships probably sailed, but if you want to see this nation rebirthed into something that once again, fears God, that's going to have to be done by men taking their God ordained positions of spiritual heads serious and really setting the tone for the family. Like Nikki said, it's, that's the only way it's going to come about. You know, we in our flesh, we're not going to be coming up with solutions to fix what ails this nation because our flesh is what got us into the mess we're in, in this nation. Mm -hmm. So, you know, we really just need communion with God and wisdom from the Holy spirit. And we're not going to get communion with God and wisdom from the Holy spirit through sports talk radio, through checking out what's happening on Wall Street, you know, we're not going to get there. And that brings me to really the second point that stood out to me in this survey. It said 83% pray to God in their own words rather than through the Bible and only 39% read from the Bible or a devotional. So my thought was, what exactly are you praying then? If only 17% pray with in accordance to the Bible and only 39% are even reading the Bible during their prayer time, what are the other, you know, 83% praying? You know, the apostle John in chapter one or in first John chapter five, verse 14, he tells us, and this is the confidence that we have toward him. That if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. So if we aren't praying from the Bible uh, or praying the Bible, <laughs> what exactly are we praying? You know, and I think this is a problem with modern church, American church, if you want to call it that. You know, we were never really taught how to pray properly. You know, a lot of people put out prayer books and it's like written down prayers and you know, say this prayer for this or whatever it happens to be, but they don't actually teach you how to pray. But it's interesting. The disciples asked Jesus how to pray. They mm. asked him to teach them how to pray, even though they'd been around him, you know, they'd seen Pharisee, all these sorts of people, but they needed to learn how to pray. Um, and he taught them. And while I don't know for sure that this is how he taught them, but you can very easily trace you know, we call it the Lord's prayer, but it's really the disciples prayer, you know, our father who art in heaven. You can pretty easily trace that through the book of Psalms, 
where Jesus is sort of pulling these phrases from, it's there in the book of Psalms. And, you know, I think the big difference between, or I think there is a difference in making our requests known to God, which is something we're commanded to do. But I think that's different than praying according to his word. I think Mm -hmm. they're two different things, and I think we should be doing both. But I think in America, and that's all I can speak about, so many have really excluded praying to God, and we just endlessly rattle off requests of the Lord, which again, I think misses the boat on how we should be praying to to God. You know, I think we need to go back to praying the word. You know, because I think that's going to be what enlivens our spirit. You know, I, I think there's spiritual growth in praying the words of scripture, you know, and we've yeah. talked about this on this show before. I mean, God gave us a prayer book in the Bible. Why would he give us the book of Psalms, which is essentially an entire book of prayers, if he didn't want us praying those prayers? That's and true. why do we suppose we can pray better prayers than the prayers God gave us? Yeah, and prayer is coming to God and acknowledging who he is, confessing and agreeing with him. Yeah, and, what was it, it said and in And because here? of who he is, because of his mercy and compassion, then we know we can bring our request to him. You have to know who he is to be willing to even think he wants to hear your requests. Yeah, in that survey, it said only 18% consider God's characteristics while spending time with the Lord. <laughs> Wow. What are you even thinking about when you're praying to God? If you're not considering who he is is (laughs) and what he does and who the Holy Spirit and what sacrifice Christ gave to, if you're not considering any of that, you're not, I don't know what you're doing, you know? So I think we just have our ideas of what prayer is screwed up. Yeah. Because again, there's nothing wrong with making requests known to God and we should do that, but boy, just I think it's profound when they say, Lord, teach us to pray. And he goes, here's the book of Psalms. Any questions? You know, so I think that's something we should get back to open. It doesn't have to necessarily be the book of Psalms, but opening God's word and praying his promises, praying his word, praying his prayers that he gave us um, and allowing that and the Holy Spirit to work faith and um, spiritual growth in us. I think we need that. And we've lost that. Apparently the survey saying we've lost that. So it's no mention why our faith is faltering in this nation. And we're reaping the just reward of that faltering faith, I think. So I just think we need to return back to that, you know, because men have to be the ones that rebirth this nation. And we've got to train our children um, to read the word for themselves. I want them to not just, I don't want to just teach them how to pray. I want to kn- them to know where to go to learn how to pray. Um, there's just, yeah, there's some of the best prayers. Like I, I can't pray anything greater than what's already written in scripture. No, we can't. I mean, again, God gave us prayers. What I mean, you're not going to do it better than God. So yeah. Yeah, just something to consider, you know, because we do read a lot of surveys and women typically their faith is not faltering in the same way that men's falter. But I mean, I guess you can even just assume that where they do falter, you could probably lay that at the feet of men. 
that where women falter and where they go astray in their faith, you know, I would take that on myself in this family where Nikki's faith falters and my kids have stumbled. That's on me for not leading them appropriately. And I think as a nation, the men in this nation that wear the, the label of Christian, I think we should all wear that, you know, where our faith has faltered in this nation, it's our fault. And when we have women like that representative standing up in Congress and perverting scripture, I would say there's a husband on the other end of that, that needs to own that. Yeah. Um, or a pastor or something somewhere that needs to own that. So yeah, whoever her pastor is. Yeah. Yeah. We need to get back into spending alone time with God, praying according to his word, taking God serious and taking his word serious, taking prayer time serious. You know, we all need to do that. I mean, we all need to do a better job of that. So do you have any final thoughts on the surveys, the news or anything really before we roll into this podcast review, our final one for generation indoctrination? Nope. Let's move on. Save big on brunch for mom all in the Kroger app. Get 16 ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% lean ground sirloin for $4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca-Cola, Pepsi or 7-Up all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. All right, so we are on the fifth episode in our generation indoctrination review. They do have a bonus episode, uh, but it doesn't seem that compelling to me. So we may listen to it eventually. And I mean, it does seem compelling. I'm not going to say that. It talks about, I think, transgender folks being moved into the opposite sex prison Mm. and stuff like that and sort of the chaos that causes. So we may get into that eventually. But uh, this episode, episode five was very short episode. They've all been short, but this was the shortest, only about 20 minutes. And even within this one, we're only going to focus on the first 10 minutes worth of content, really, because I think that was the more powerful part. Uh, I think the rest of it was good. You know, they talked to a father from the Loudoun County School District, which we know was kind of uh, a focal point in sort of the battle on uh, parents' rights in schools over the last few years. And But the first 10 minutes there was an interview with a detransitioner whose name was Laura Beth Perry Smoltz. So I'm just going to pray, uh, play the intro here and then we'll get into this uh, podcast review. I feel like I lost nine years of my life. And then there was all the regret too of just the things that I've done to my body. The fact that I didn't have breasts anymore and I ended up getting married and my husband didn't know if I'd ever have breasts again. I was able to get breast surgery about three months ago and get implants, but it's not the same. Laura Beth Perry Smaltz is just one of thousands who became enveloped in the transgender craze. She spent nine years presenting as a man after undergoing life-changing surgeries, removal of her reproductive system, and taking drugs, all in a quest to make her feel more like a man. But after all the chaos and pain, she came face to face with the lies she had been sold, and she detransitioned. Now she's speaking out and sharing her story. For Laura Beth, the feelings of strong incongruence with her biological sex started early. Yeah, so that's kind of just 
the overview of the episode and that's that laura beth perry smaltz girl that was talking about it um, and she goes into some detail you know about her life and it's just really interesting to hear a you know kind of unfiltered sort of discussion on the life of a detransitioner and what they went through so i think it was pretty interesting uh, but the first point that i want to discuss is a another issue that we can't lose sight of in 2023 um, and that's that idea of the social contagion so she talked about this a little bit so i'm going to let her say it for herself And so I began to, and of course I didn't realize this at the time, but I looked back on my life and how much I'd wanted to be a boy as a kid. And I thought, you know, this makes sense. The reason this never works is because I was supposed to be the man. If I was the man, then I know how to treat a girl. And so I began to research it on the internet just to see if anybody felt like I did. And I was shocked when thousands of results came up and there were all these people that had quote transitioned. Yeah. So, you know, to me, when I hear her say that, you know, to me, that sounds like the social contagion plague that's really causing this sort of trans phenomenon to really explode. And uh, I don't know if it says in this episode when Laura Beth Perry sort of went through this transition. Um, she's just now sort of detransitioning. So, yeah, I don't know how old she was. Yeah, so I don't know what year it was, but obviously... Every year that passes, the internet, social media becomes more pervasive around the world, you know, so you can imagine that this, whatever, however bad it was in her day, it's only getting worse, you know, because yeah, back then she had, she said thousands of, well, and she results. talks about finding groups and stuff online. So who knows, you know, she wasn't just maybe not just jumping on social media. I mean, again, I don't know, maybe she was, and she just didn't say it in a way that we understood, but either way, it gets worse every year. It's worse in 2023 than it was in 2022. And uh, unless we change things, it's going to be worse in 2024. But, you know, just sort of this idea she talks about, like whatever kind of mental delirium that you're going through, you know, hers was gender sort of, uh, dis I guess, dissatisfaction with her gender. That's kind of what she was going through, right? And even if you're in that mindset, you know, you're in the 0.1% of human beings on planet Earth who have gender dysphoria or whatever it happens to be, you can jump on the internet. She did. And we have the ability today, jump on the internet, social media, and you can go and find that other, the rest of that 0.1%. And together you can be made to feel that really what's going on with you is normal. Look at yeah. all these thousands of people. Well, you may have found thousands of people that were completely scattered, yeah. you know, complete outliers. But when you get on the internet together in your little group, ah, we have all the strength, you know, right. I'm that just makes like sense. all these other people instead of going, boy, I'm 0.1% of all humans. Like that's not normal. Maybe I should look into why I feel so unnormal or abnormal instead of, oh, I feel just like all these other complete outliers of human beings. I wonder if you do a search online, what's going to pop up more like help for your confusion or affirmation in your confusion. I never actually like just did a little search and just see what kind of things come up first. 
yeah, to try to sway um, the outcome. Yeah, I mean, because you assume that Google controls our internet and they're pretty left-leaning. Yeah. You know, so I imagine you have to sift through a lot of affirmation, you know, trans is great and glorious before you can actually get to the truth of any of it. Or even before she went, because she goes on, you know, a lot of them can't have children later. Is that even anything to think about? Like, because they say like, I didn't feel like a girl, you know, I didn't, I couldn't relate to other girls my age. Um, But just ask the question, do you want children one day? Yes. Okay. You have that in common. Because that's what women talk about. They get together and they talk about their kids, especially when you have little kids. And that will help you relate to other women. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Um, so. But again, I mean, you're also taking people who in the midst of their trauma and their turmoil. And they, and again, this is why you should have mental health care professionals, that they're the ones that are going to help you see beyond the immediate. Because yes, right now you're struggling with yourself and you're, you know, you're going through a difficult time, but if I can take you 10, 15 years down the road and show you what it looks like and how you may want to have children and, you know, these sorts of things, well, then I can help you overcome it. But they don't. They just go, oh, you feel like this right now at 14? Well, this is the only way you'll ever feel, so we need to accomplish this right now. Well, no, that's terrible advice, right? And they always put, like, mental health above everything else you know, the doctor should care about, you know, what's going to happen to you taking all these hormones, um, all the negative side effects that'll affect you, that will really make you depressed. Um, but they do, they, they take the, the mental health, you know, if you don't get this transition, you know, or if you don't let your kid get it done, they're probably going to commit suicide, but they do, they take they make a big deal about the immediate mental care and not think at all about the future of their mental state with them going forward with it. Like that will be worse than the future for them without getting any of the therapy or. I mean, that's certainly what it seems like they do focus on the immediate medical or mental aspect and forego everything else, which she does talk about in this episode about the stuff that they really failed to tell her, or even when they did, it was kind of glossed over. She kind of highlights that in this. But another reason why I think the social contagion is dangerous is because once you get online, you don't really know the people that you're letting lead you and guide your thoughts. Right. You know, you may be like this girl, really struggling with your self-perception, your gender or whatever it happens to be. And the person that you're discussing with in these groups online, social media, whatever, they could be nothing more than just a complete sexual deviant, complete pervert, terrible person. You don't know that. And you'll never get to know that, right? But you're getting this life-altering advice from these people that doesn't know you, doesn't care about you. And you might find out if you met them in person, they might repulse you as who they are. And you're like... No, you're just kind of a pervert. Like, I'm actually really struggling here. Well, you don't need to take advice from that uh, person. Good point. And I think, you know, just for us as, you know, believers and Christians, I think we really need to get back to the position of having uh, older and wiser people around us, you know, and our Mm -hmm. kids as well, so that they can speak sense into us. Um, You know, this is why me and Nikki have become, as we've gotten older, 
big advocates for having your children in church with you and not just in kids church, mm-hmm. but get them in the congregation around you, around the older people in the church, let them meet them and let them talk to the older people. Um, yeah. Cause older people love passing on wisdom to younger people. And secondly, your kids need to hear godly counsel from people that have lived good, godly lives. And they're yep. never going to hear that if they're just playing Mario Kart in kids church, you know, get them around the older folks That's and the let them speak with, life like, into them. Even like the whole argument with about homeschooling, like your kids aren't getting socialized. Um, yeah, they'll get socialized being around, you know, a big, um, you know, just more age, uh, older, older people, because they're just going to school, they're only around people their age and at least right. going to church and then not sticking them in kids church or they're just around kids their age too. At least, you know, if they go to school, bring them into church with you where they get to talk to people of different ages is what I mean. At least get them socialized in that way. You want them to be socialized. They're not going to learn how to talk to adults, maybe just their teacher and their own parent but they right. need to learn how to have conversation with people like 50 years older than them and to know that they enjoy having conversation with them, you know? Yeah. I think there's a lot of benefit to it. Not just the preaching, but just the growing yeah. up and being around people and talking to people experience. And I think then, it's been great for our kids going to our church. They just, there's just such a. And they can learn how to show up, sit down and be quiet. And listen, <laughs> that's good for kids yeah, too, Yeah, and right? they learn watching us, you know, that we listen, that we pray and we sing and it is good to worship uh, together as a family for one. Yeah, no, I agree. So I think that's something that can help with them. But yeah, the social contagion, very real. We need to be aware of it. Keep our kids off of social media. And we ourselves should be on social media far, far less than yes. we are. Um, so there's more that Laura had to say. I got two clips pulled up here. I don't know exactly what the second clip talks about. So we're going to listen to them both and figure it out. All right, let's see what Laura has to say. So I was just so excited. I thought this was the answer to all my problems in my life. And so I said, well, the first thing you need to go do is go to a psychiatrist and get diagnosed with gender identity disorder. And then they will help you get the hormones and stuff to start transition. So I I did. There was one in town that was known for helping trans people. And I really had no interest in counseling. I didn't think any of my problems in my past were related to this at all. I just thought I was a man born in a woman's body and I just needed to fix the body. along the way. And it's so maddening when I look back, like where are the doctors that were willing to say, hey, wait a second, this is really not good for your body. The main doctor that I was going to, she was known in town for helping trans people transition. And she had me going to, my blood levels were so bad. I had extremely high, I think it was the hematocrit levels, like my my blood was too thick, in other words. And she was I was in danger of a stroke, but in telling, instead of telling me this wasn't good for me, she had me going to the blood bank, 
like every month or so to do a therapeutic withdrawal where they would just take a pint of blood out of me to try to thin out the blood. <laughs> I was like, why didn't anybody ever say like, this is just really not good for you, your, your body. And they don't like, they tell you the side effects, but they don't really talk about it with you. Yeah. So that's her kind of, you know, pointing out a little bit what Nikki had said there in that second clip, you know, all the negative things that really come about, you know, that yeah. you don't pay attention to when you're just like, ah, I'm dealing with this issue. They don't tell you that like, well, you're gonna have to get therapeutic blood withdrawals for the rest of your life. So you don't die from your, whatever she said, hemocratic levels being too high. So yeah, count the cost. Just, is it better just to be a little upset thinking you're in the wrong body or to have a miserable life, but in the gender you think you should be? But you're right. And a lot and... of these detransitioners are the ones that are willing to speak out. You know, what is a woman's documentary? They go at great length to explain all the difficulties that they were unaware of that this was going to pose to them and really what a burden that's been on them in their life. So, uh, but that first clip there, I think it's interesting. She doesn't mention that she is going to the doctor to get help when she's going through this struggle. She doesn't say, I was going to go to the doctor to get help. She basically says she's already decided what was wrong with her and what she needed to have done. She was just going to go to a doctor and get it signed off. And lucky for her, there was a doctor in town that was willing to do it, just willing to give you that rubber stamp and sign off on it for you. Uh, and Jordan Peterson talked about this again, that what is a woman documentary the idea that gender affirmation or really affirmation care is not medical treatment. You know, you don't affirm somebody in their delusions, you treat it. And what she sort of explains here with having the psychiatrist in town that's known for helping uh, people gender transition, that's not medical care. That's just medical confirmation of your unmedical diagnosis. You know, she just goes to him and goes, I feel like I'm a man in a woman's body. And they go, good enough for me. Let's get you on that testosterone treatment instead of going, yeah, but you're a woman, right? I mean, let's look in the mirror. You're a woman. So let's get to the root of what's really causing you problems. They aren't doing that. Like you don't, and we've said this a bunch of times, but it's worth saying again, you don't affirm somebody in their delusions. That's not medical care. Right. right? If I came in and said, I have a burning rage to murder people, you're not going to sit down and go, well, let's figure out how to not get you caught. No, you, don't, you, you would get to the root of my anger issues and get rid of them. Just like you don't come in and you say, I have a brain tumor and let's start scheduling that to get this tumor out. Okay, let's schedule it and never check to see. Yeah. Don't, if there really I'm is a problem. I'm not going for an MRI. I got the brain tumor. Just, you just take my word. Line the surgeon up, take a chunk of my brain out. <laughs> like he wouldn't do that. Although... And this was the point that I had after listening to her, you know, because maybe they would in 2023, because I don't know if there's an industry that we've lost more faith in in America than the medical industry Gosh, over the last sad. two years, two or three years. I mean, boy, the faith that we've lost in med, And maybe that's tough, right? Because we've lost faith in every industry, science, medical, political. Uh, I mean, even so many that wear the label of faith and Christian have sullied that reputation 
But I do think medical has to be near the top of the list. Um, and stuff like this only makes it worse. Just show up, tell me what you think's wrong. I'll rubber stamp it. And then, uh, yeah, you pay me a bunch of money and then you go ruin yourself and your life. Deal? Good. Good, good, good. So Sad. crazy. So did your patient get healthier because you affirmed them is the question. Because yeah, you, of course you made them get sick. That's all you did. Right. And that's what they, you know, the whole Vanderbilt, you know, that was exposed down there where they basically said, hey, we need to be doing this uh, gender transition because it's big money. It's a lifetime of care that we get to provide. Yeah. You get to provide them care on the delusion at the start. You get to give them all the hormone treatments, all the surgeries. And then after the surgery, you get all the follow-up medical care when you're fixing these problems that we've caused. They create customers. All the mental health problems we still get to solve. Like we're getting it on both ends. So yeah. it's great. Yeah. Great for them. Terrible for you. It's smart so. business on their end. <laughs> yeah. Satan couldn't be any happier with that business strategy. So we do have uh, one or two more clips here that I want to play. So let's, let's listen to what Laura has to say here. She ended up meeting a psychiatrist and immediately started testosterone, beginning her path with what she mistakenly believed would be her healing. What followed was an endless quest to find affirmation as a man, but eventually that facade crumbled. Years into presenting this way, Laura Beth said things began to change, particularly when it came from her strained relationship with her mother. And what was interesting about mine and my mom's story is that the Lord first changed her. And I saw this change in my mother, and I saw peace in her and faith for the first time in my entire life. And I wanted what she had. You know, when I listen to this, and I've listened to it a couple times, I think that's the most important clip that's played in this entire episode. Uh, the most powerful, the most important, probably really in the entire podcast series. You know, and it stood out to me because this is a topic that we've discussed before on here. Uh, this, we talked about an article maybe last year, 2021, I think sometime, you know, this article from Christianity Today in its title, Parents Set the Pace for Their Adult Children's Religious Life. And down here it says, all empirical data tell us that for intergenerational religious transmission today, the key agents are parents, not clergy or other religious professionals. The key location is the home, not religious congregations. And the key mechanism of socialization are the formation of ordinary life practices and identities, not programs, preaching, or formal rites of passage. And you know, it's just this idea that parents are the greatest force in producing a religious God-fearing child. Mm -hmm. And as the case with Laura here, that doesn't uh, stop when the parents get older or the children get older. You know, so even if you feel like Laura's mom in this podcast might have felt, you know, that her daughter had wandered so far, or maybe your child had wandered far in a different avenue, drugs, you know, violence, gangs, whatever it happens to be, they've wandered so far, they're still watching, you know, and as long as your children are breathing, they're still watching you and they're still learning from you. 
And I think that's the important part to take from what she just said. You know, she said she witnessed God change her mother first. Mm. And that peace that was brought about in her mother's life, she kind of realized that's what I've been chasing my whole life. I thought gender transition was it, but it hasn't been it. I Mm. want what you have. And that only came from God, you know. So even as we get older, and this is a great blessing or a hope for me and Nikki, and I hope it is for you as well, that as your kids get older, you get older, just continue to live that life of faithfulness, continue to spur your children on to living a life of faithfulness, Um, you know, because we never outgrow that responsibility to train our children in the way they should go. Even when they're old children, you still have to train them in the way they should go and just trust that God's going to work in their life um, and bring them out of whatever sort of sin and wandering they've gone through and that he can lead them back home. I just think that's super hopeful. Yeah, it is just knowing. I'm sure a lot of people have that testimony. I mean, even, I mean, there's stories even of children getting saved and then the parents getting saved and yeah, there's why, why I think it's not possible to have uh, an impact on your children after they're grown, especially with, um, I mean, you disciple, you disciple other adults. So why would you not disciple your adult children? You know? Yeah. I mean, and it's important that you stay engaged with your children, maintain that good relationship and again, continue to work on yourself so that they do have a model to view. Um, you know, it's not just in marriage and these sorts of things and your work life, but also your faith life. That's the most important part of it. So I just think that's encouraging to hear her yeah. say, man, I saw my mom's life change by the power of God and I wanted what she had. Um, yeah. And it's, it is, it encourages us to stay close with the Lord and to not walk because your children are still wa- watching you even after they're adults. And if they see you walking off the path you lose faith, you, you could be leading them astray um, just because they're grown up and their faith is their own. You can still be a stumbling block to your own children. You know, they're, they still watch you. Yeah, that's kind of the flip side of it. You can either help lead them to God or you can help push them away from God Yeah, based on your life choices and your faith, you know, faith walk. So something important for us to consider as we get older. Um, But I do have one final clip here that I want to play from Laura. So let's see what she has to say on this last clip. Laura Best said she too found Jesus. Still living as a transgender identified woman, she had no intentions of detransitioning. But God had other plans. My whole life became about Jesus. He began to to really change me. But I was going to be a man of God. But the Lord began to to draw me out of it, just slowly to show me the truth of what He wanted for me. I didn't want to detransition myself because I was there was so much pain when I thought about being a woman. It was just more than I could bear, and I knew it was wrong. I knew it wasn't who I truly was. But there, I just, there was no way I could go back to being a woman. You know, so on that point that she says there, I mean, so often you'll kind of hear something similar you know, to what she said there from people that really don't want to give up their sin. They'll kind of make that claim and that argument that, you know, well, Jesus was a friend of sinners, you know, that somehow Jesus came or really his, 
his coming here for the lost and for the sinners means that he loves and accepts our sins. And that's just plain wrong. That's a wrong mindset and a wrong understanding yeah. of what Christ came to do. Uh, because Jesus did come for the lost and for the sinners, but those who followed him never stayed that way. He called them out of that sin. He called them out of being lost um, yeah. and showed them the way you know, to God, which was through him, through his commandments. So this idea, like she says in there, I was going to be a man of God. Well, God wasn't going to allow you to follow him and stay living in that life of sinfulness. He would drew her out of that life of sinfulness so she could walk closely with him mm. the way he designed her. So we can't have that mindset of, well, you know, he, Jesus is a friend of sinners. So that means if I'm a sinner, I'm right where I need to be. <laughs> right. <laughs> no, that is very twisted. No, that's where he found you. That is not where he's going to leave you. Yeah. He will not leave us as orphans. Yeah. He will not leave you in your sin. Yeah. So this is a message, again, something to not lose focus on. This is a message that really needs to be preached to everyone, but especially those in that LGBTQ crowd. You know, you can't, you just can't continue a life of sort of pridefully um, sinning and that sort of stuff, claiming to be in right standing with God. You can't live that life. You can't live in open rejection to God's commandments and still claim to be a, a Christ follower. You can't do it. You know, Jesus told Nicodemus in John chapter three, verse three, he says, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. You know, we've got to be born again out of our old life of sinfulness. Um, and that's kind of that idea of repenting. You know, repenting isn't just turning from a life of sin, but it's also turning towards an adherence to Christ and his commandments, putting your faith in him, adhering to his commandments. That's what he's told us to do. To mm -hmm. adhere to his commandments. Adhere to his commandments, yes. So that's all part of that. If you're going to move towards a life of faith in Christ. And again, like he says there, you've got to be born again if you hope to enter the kingdom of God. And yep. That's being born again out of your sinfulness. Amen. So it's a really good podcast. Again, they're short episodes. Do you have any last thoughts on really what we've talked about in this series as a whole? Or this episode specifically? No. Yeah, I mean, I will just end on the podcast piece here. Um, these people, they aren't too far gone. The sin of a transgendered person, the sin of a homosexual, is no greater sin than any other sin that we deal with. Um, they're no further out of God's reach than the person who's filled with greed and anger and lust. None of it. It's all the same. So we can't treat them as though they're somehow different. And that starts with not coddling them in their sin. You know, you're going to get pushed back and you're going to get called a bigot and a hater. You can't let that deter you because we're the only ones actually giving them a message of true love and hope. And that's an eternity in heaven with God. So don't think they're too far gone. These stories from these detransitioners are just great hope for that that they need to hear a message um, just like everybody else needs to hear, the gospel message. That's still the power to save them just the same as it is to save everybody else under the yep. sun. So I think that's why it's encouraging. And it's a good listen. So I encourage you, if you haven't listened to it yet, 
Links will be down in the show notes to go give it a listen. Uh, again, they're short and they're just jammed with information. So it's good kind of tools to put in your, your toolbox there when you're sharing the gospel with people. So, all right. So before we end this episode, I do want to discuss our seventh uh, assurance of salvation. That's going to be our Bible topic today. We've already covered on this podcast, the road to salvation and the first six points in our assurances. So you can go back and give all those a listen. I encourage you to, Uh, but we are on point number seven today. And those all come from the book of first John. That's where all of our assurances Mm -hmm. have come from. So point number seven here, honey, do you want to read that one? All right. First John two twenty three. No one who denies the Son has the Father. Whoever confesses the Son has the Father also. Yep. No one who denies the Son has the Father. So if you confess the Son, you have the Father also. You know, so to me, this is kind of that boldly proclaiming Jesus Christ as Lord, you know, really without hesitation. Uh, in Matthew chapter 10, verse 32 and 33, it says, Everyone who acknowledges me before men, I also will acknowledge before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I also will deny before my Father who is in heaven. And I think that this would tie in with some of the previous points that we've talked about. Again, we've mentioned on here before, not all of these points are completely separate and independent points. Some of them sound very similar to other points. Mm -hmm. Um, But this one to me sounds a lot like not it sounds like not looking like the world which is a previous point that he has made you know so if you're confessing christ i would say you're probably not looking a lot like the world i think those points are joined yeah i think it's important that we talk about like what does it look like for someone who confesses christ like the way you act are you confessing him in the way you live you're confessing to follow him or you're denying him in ways you don't follow him. It's not just by what you say. It's about what, how you live. Yeah, I agree entirely. I mean, you know, this is why Jesus tells those parables, right? Like, the, you know, when I was hungry, you fed me. When I was thirsty, you gave me something to drink. Mm-hmm. When I was naked, you clothed me. I mean, just talking about the way that you treat people can show that you're confessing Christ or not denying him, you know, loving your enemy. Um, you know, I think that's a way, obviously adhering to his commandments is a way of showing that you're confessing him, you know, whereas if you're doing the complete opposite, then I would say you're, um, showing that you're denying him by denying what he's, co- you know, commanded you to do. Mm-hmm. You know, if you're just living like the lost and sinful world, I'd say that's a form of denying Jesus, you know, again, maybe like the LGBTQ stuff that we've talked about. If you're claiming, you know, I want to be a a Christian, but I'm not willing to forgo all of the sin that I'm living in currently. Well, you're denying Christ at that point because he's told you to come out of that sin, to repent and turn from that sin. So if you're not doing it, you're denying him. Um, That's something I would, I would consider to fall into this category. So, you know, you could look at this kind of, if your life in no way reflects um, Jesus or the commandments he's told us to follow, 
I'd say it's a form of denying. Uh, you know, I've always kind of made the joke of, you know, it'd be like wearing your cross necklace to the strip club, right? Yeah. Um, <laughs> you know, you're not choosing Christ in that moment. You're denying Christ and you're choosing the world regardless of what your necklace says, right? You look like, yeah, the ultimate hypocrite and liar doing that. <laughs> yeah, I mean, and then there's also the uh, professing Christ, of course, with your words. You know, like he says, not denying, then you would also attach to that professing with your words. And First Peter chapter 3, verse 15, it says, But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks uh, asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you, yet do it with gentleness and respect. So again, just speaking openly about Christ when the opportunity presents itself and not shirking away from that, I would say is uh, not denying Christ. And, you know, I really just think the idea of if people aren't sure if you're a Christian, I don't think that's great. <laughs> you know, yeah. like you don't have to necessarily be a complete Bible thumper. Um, but, you know, we talk about things that we love, you know, and I brought this point up when I was talking to the guys in jail about assurances. You know, if people that, you know, if they know that you're like a Florida Gator football fan, if they know, you know, your eating habits, if they know you're a vegetarian or even worse than that for the guys in jail, if they know that you're a drug addict some kind of a thug or a gangster, but they don't know that you love Jesus, that's not good. I would say you've been denying him in your life if people don't actually know that that's something, you know, about you, that you're a Christ follower. If, if they can go, oh man, yeah, I know Spencer, he's a big Michigan football fan. And, you know, I know he likes computers and I know uh, he likes to work out a bunch, but like nowhere on that list is he's a Christian. I've probably done a disservice to God. How can we make it known? Not that it's just because we care what, how people um, think of us. Like we want them to know we're a Christian because we want, we want to honor God and, and hopefully um, talk with them, you know, share the gospel with them. But what, what, what would be a reason someone first meets you that they'd, but I would even cross their mind. Maybe they're not even thinking about it. They'll just think something's different about this person. They're not like everybody else. Right. And this may not be something you have to concern with every person you bump into the grocery yeah. store. But I mean, right. if you have coworkers, friends in the neighborhood, neighbor, all these sorts of people, and they don't know that you are a strong believer in Christ, I think that's a problem. Yeah. If the cashier at the grocery store doesn't, yeah, maybe off the hook there, right? I just mean they're, they're going to um, notice. Not that you shouldn't make make it known. You should, yeah. <laughs> but if they don't know that, oh, I just met Tommy and he changed my oil in the car at you know Jiffy Lube. <laughs> okay, if he doesn't know that you're a Christian, you're probably all right. But you'd be if you're not living a godly life, you're living worldly. Then you would be ashamed to tell, um, others, um that you are a Christian. You know what I mean? Like you're going to the club or, you know, the strip club or whatever. Yeah, then, you and then you tell someone I'm a Christian. I would be ashamed to even say it. I would, I would not even want to say I'm a Christian. But I think that goes to the bigger problem in this nation where we don't actually confront people in their sin. They say, 
I'm a Christian. And we go good enough for me. Yeah. Even if yeah. they're, you know, the most out in your face, transgendered, pervert, drug dealer, criminal, murderer, who cares? Did you say you're a Christian? Well, then I'll believe you instead of going, man, your life don't look like, like no Christian. Like you said, it's just an accessory to yeah, people. It's just an accessory. And we need to call that stuff out. Not to be rude or overly judgmental or say their soul's in peril, but say, hey, man, uh, you tell me you have faith, but what does James say? Show me your works. D does your life actually look like the life of a Christian? If not, you may want to reconsider where your faith lies. So, right. Um, that's our seventh of 10 assurances. No one who denies the son has the father, but whoever confesses the son has the father also. John or first John chapter two, verse 23. So do you have any final thoughts on anything we've talked about before we end with our sermon recommendations? Uh, nope. All right. So we're going to have two sermon recommendations today only because we want you to go listen to generation indoctrination, what we've been talking about. So that's one. The second one here is another podcast from Andrew Rappaport's Rap Report. And this one is on justification. And the reason why we're recommending this one is because yours truly was on this podcast, co-hosting with Andrew, me and Nikki. So we were on there discussing the very important doctrine of justification with Andrew. And I think it was a very good discussion. He's a very uh, well thought out, uh, man in the way he explains his the doctrine and we were just there as i don't know someone to talk to so hopefully we contributed <laughs> in some way but go give that a listen again andrew is the executive director of christian podcast community um, a fellow podcaster christian pastor so i think it would be worth your time to give it a listen mm -hmm. and while you're there follow him, leave him a nice review. I'm sure he'd appreciate all of that. So that is all we got for today. We'll be back on Monday with our devotionals and then rolling into next week on Saturday, hopefully getting to assurance number eight, depending on what the world throws at us. We will have to see. That is all we got for today. God bless. Without the ones like you, who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you, with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done.